When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You just heard a clip from the song I Want a Future 2 by Zach, a musical artist out of Akron, Ohio. Zach is our featured artist today. So at the end of the podcast, we'll play the whole song for you and tell you a little bit more about him. And if you're making original music in Ohio, we'd love to feature you right here on Ohio Mysteries. Just shoot us an email on over at Feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself. But right now, throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our research and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, a former award-winning journalist with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, I'm excited to report we also have our first Patreon supporters. So a huge thank you to Kim of Green, Tootie of Bath, and BJ of Barberton for being charter contributors to our Patreon page. Thanks, ladies. All right. Thank you, Patreon supporters. And tonight, we have a special guest with us. With over three dozen journalism awards, including back-to-back first-place finishes of Best News Writer in Ohio by the Associated Press Media Editors, he also captured not one, but two local Emmy Awards. Welcome WKYC's Ohio's own Phil Trexler. Paul, it's great to be here. How are you? (laughs) We're so glad to have you. Phil, I'm a big fan of yours from newsprint to television. Now, I've just summed up your career in just a few sentences. However, tell us a little bit more about why you chose this career path and a little bit more on your career history. Yeah, it all started, I think, back in fourth grade at St. Coleman School in Cleveland, where uh, my fourth grade teacher, Miss Bombeck, took a uh, box that our new refrigerator came in and turned it into a TV studio. So we would, kids would stand in there and we would pretend we were reporters and Ever since then, it was something um, that I always wanted to do. I always, you know, I read newspapers uh, whenever I could. Um, you know, I was really into sports and just and being into broadcasting or into writing. Um, took that to Kent State and really just uh, loved it. It was. It's never been work to me. It's that, it's just fun. The the refrigerator box is such a cool idea. But you know, your career was. 
I knew most of your career in newsprint. Did you ever, did you plan it to end in television the way it did, or was that just a happy accident? No, I actually, I went to Kent State and I planned on majoring in broadcast journalism. Um, I did a couple uh, semesters at the TV station there and felt totally uncomfortable in front of the camera. Um, I went to the Daily Kent Stater, worked on the newspaper, and was fortunate to get the police beat, which at any newspaper is the best beat to have. There is just an endless supply of stories that are not only intriguing, but are real captivating to people. Crime stories are always the most read. They're the most interesting. They're the best way to tell stories, and that's what I enjoy doing is telling stories. Tragic as they may be, they're still, you know, they're important stories. And certainly, you know, when someone dies, it's, 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 it's a life-altering experience for everyone. And I felt... Um, you know, a responsibility, and I felt a privilege to be able to tell people's stories. Very well put. I, I never thought of it that way, but, you know, that's, and I'm not in that business. Well, I, you know, as a reporter, one thing you hear a lot from people who are standing on the outside is sometimes they get angry that you're trying to speak to victims' families or offering them the opportunity to talk, but the truth is, a lot of times, Victims' families want to speak. They want to be the voice for the loved one they lost. And I was always impressed when you did crime stories. You were always so successful in getting families to speak and relay what they felt was important to relay, giving them that venue to do it. It, it sounded, it always felt to me like that was really important to you to make sure the victim had a voice. And it was the hardest part of my job, uh, knocking on somebody's door and asking them to talk about it. Sometimes the door was slammed on my face and I'm called a vulture. Other times I'm hugged and welcomed into people's homes. I, I, I think it, it's a job that we have to do. I think every reporter just cringes when we have to do it because it's such an uncomfortable situation. I was going to ask if it got any easier, but it doesn't sound No, it, it never does get easier. It's very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's you want... I tell the people, like, we want, you know, your child to be more than just a, a sentence and a story, you know. We want their life to have some importance to let people know that that your son or, or daughter mattered and, and this is the way that it's going to be done and should be done. And um, and I think people understand that, that it's, it's, it's necessary. Not only does it bring attention to it and perhaps to help solve the crime, but to let people know that that person's life mattered. Absolutely. Now, I've seen your face on television before. How many national television shows have you done? Uh, I've done, you know, Nancy Grace, I've done a lot. Whenever there was some sort of crime in Ohio, uh, her show would call and, and I would help out. Um, so you don't, you don't have Nancy Grace on speed dial. She has you on speed <laughs> right, dial, right? Were, exactly. Well, when, when she had her show. I also have done a lot of those uh, true crime shows that you see on the... Uh, on the City Confidential. City Confidential, like Snapped, Murder She Solved, Dateline, American Justice. Uh, for some reason, these national shows really love Ohio crime. We give them some good ones to we, talk about. We do, unfortunately. And uh, I think it's because it's, it's middle America. 
Uh, it's, it, it, sadly, it, it usually involves you know a white person being killed under some strange circumstances, and there's a, some mystery involved in it. And uh, it's just there's stories about people who normally aren't murdered getting murdered. They do. They they are really intrigued by the crime, particularly Akron has been certainly a hotbed. I mean, I, there's shows that I've done repeatedly. Uh, you know, the, some of the murder cases, the, the Zach case uh, involving Cindy George and, and uh, those cases I've done multiple times with the, the Clarence Elkins case, uh, which has fascinated folks. So, you know, I've done those three or four times. The, the, the Craigslist killings I've done multiple times. They did some, they could just get repeated over the, over the years by different production companies who just really are intrigued by our, our cases and those shows are so popular on TV and that's why they, they, they keep coming back. Well, tonight uh, we're going to talk about a story that you had covered. You know, when I had asked you to be on a podcast, I asked you to pick a, a case that intrigued you the most and one that was at the top of your list was the case of Raymond J. Timbrook which is a 1992 unsolved murder out of Lake County. I have to admit this one I hadn't heard of because it's out of the geographic area that I covered as a journalist. But where where were you when this was happening? I was I was really a, a young reporter. Uh, it was my second year as a professional reporter after graduating from Kent. It was I think my first year at the News Herald in Lake County. I was of course a police reporter there, and it, it was just it's a case that fascinates me to this day. I still have conversations with law enforcement who are familiar with the case intimately. Just had a conversation an hour ago with someone who is intimate with the case to prepare for this and uh, talking about the history of the case and what's happened in the background. And it's just, it's a case, it's tragic in the sense that it's a young man, family man, businessman uh, who was gunned down execution style. Uh, in very unusual circumstances, a case that's gone, gone unsolved, has received very little attention, there's been very few leads, and uh, frankly, I think it's a case that law enforcement does not want to solve. It's the feeling that I get, that there are, there are certain things about the case that make law enforcement, that make our government uncomfortable. And I think that there have been opportunities to pursue that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, people in power have told law enforcement to back away, look the other way, and not do anything on it. No, I can't even imagine how frustrating that must be for for his family. Why don't to, why don't you tell our listeners who Raymond Timbrook was? He was he was a 44 years old divorcee. Had uh, two sons. Uh, I think at the time they were 15, 17 years old. Uh, Ray was a successful businessman. Worked as an engineer at CT Consultants. CT Consultants is is a huge uh, corporation, heavily involved in government contracts throughout Northeast Ohio. That's interesting. Uh, a lot of road construction work. A lot of engineering work is done through CT Consultants. They're everywhere. They're very prominent corporation that uh, has thrived through a lot of government uh, contract work. 
Uh, I think in one of the news clippings I heard, at the time of this murder, they had 200 people on the payroll for mm -hmm. just a consulting company. Mm -hmm. 200 sounds like a lot. Yeah, so. it's, it's a huge company. Yeah. A huge company and a multi, multi-million dollar company that bid on and received multiple, multiple millions of dollars in government contract work. A lot of it in road construction and, and, and whatnot. That's their primary business was was that um, working mm -hmm. with governments on, on on major road projects that uh, that we see all the time, and that we take actually pay little attention to, except we complain about the traffic. But do we really look at the money that's spent on these road constructions? Why does it cost four million dollars to put in a you know one mile stretch of road? Why did they lay new road on Cedar Road and then tear it back up? <laughs> you tell That's me? my question. Why did these uh, roads only uh, last a year? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, Steve, because that was one of the questions that was asked in, in this case. Oh. Uh, Lost Nation Road in, in Willoughby uh, was one of those roads that was constructed and tore up and rebuilt. Huh. Um, and, you know... That, I, mean, I think that's, a, that's the thing that, that strikes me. You know, there's that movie, uh, The Man Who, Mo Who Knew Too Much. I think Ray Tenbrook was a man who knew too much. See, I was going to say that, um, you know, you're talking about a company with lots of power and lots of money. I mean, is this, is this going to take, you know, is this going to be part of the story? I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. But I, what I do know and what everybody knows is that there were two co-workers of Tenbrook who uh, were close to him. Um, one he was engaged to, the other he was supposed to meet uh, at that site where he was murdered. Uh, and those two co-workers, instead of uh, interviewing with police, instead chose to hire attorneys and, and never gave statements. Yeah, I, I, you know, if my co-worker's killed, I, I cooperate. I don't, I don't know. Um, I it's not, this, shouldn't, so. this should not be an indictment against CT consultants altogether. But uh, certainly there's, there's concern there when you have co-workers who are refusing to speak. Well, I know the, the president of the company at the time, Frank Federico, he had issued a corporate memo asking employees specifically to step up. And he did confirm to the media that there were two employees that were reluctant to right. talk to police. And he said he couldn't explain why. Um, but yeah, that's that's always and, been a nag. And let's let's talk about it. at the beginning. You know, when uh, Tim Brooks' body was found, it was a, it was at this development. At the time, it was it basically was a road with empty lots. Nothing had been built yet. Uh, Tim Brook requested a meeting with a coworker. The coworker confirmed that yes, there was supposed to be this meeting. The coworker said though, however, he failed. He didn't make the appointment. Timbrook was there. He was in his car. The motor was running. It was a, a Friday the 13th. It was a cold day. When he was found, as again, the, the engine was running. The engine was running. The heat was on in the car. Uh, he was there a long time because uh, the police found, and it still strikes me odd, that he had burns on his calves. Oh, man. From, from the heater? From the heat of his car. Wow. So he was sitting there that long with the engine running. Uh, he was shot twice in the head. I mean, it's execution-style homicide, clearly. 
But the, the, the and he's just the, in the middle of a road. He's he not parked. No, he was parked. No, he was parked. Okay. He was parked on the side of next to the curb. Okay. Uh, so he's facing out of the, the development as if, you know, I, so I'll be easy to spot. You'll see my car. I'll be right there. So he goes to work this day. It's Friday the 13th. And he has a meeting set up for some co with some coworkers. One coworker. One coworker. Yeah. He, okay. He was there to meet George. At this specific spot. At this meet me here at three thirty or whatever at this at this location at the site at three thirty. They the, the meeting was agreed upon. They were going to meet there. Who knows what they're going to talk about? We don't know. But, so but Tim Brook was Tim Brook was there alone in his car waiting to meet with George. So this is uh, March thirteenth of uh, nineteen ninety two. And just a little bit more about that location. It's in Kirkland Hills. Yeah. And it was a subdivision called Hunting Hills. And it was actually a subdivision that CT Consultants was working in. Correct, right. And they were, it was, as Phil said, it was vacant. And they were promoting this as a, quote, country quiet allotment um, for families who wanted 5 to 20 acre wooded lots. And his body's found by a patrolman. Yeah. That was just a routine. Right. I, I, believe there was, I think there was a call made at some point. Uh, I don't know if there was a call made or if the patrolman was just driving through. But, yeah, the, uh, okay. because there was a witness who came forward, and there was a composite sketch that was passed around back then of a white male, kind of a burly-looking guy, side profile. So a woman who had driven through the development saw somebody leaving that area around the time of the shooting so there was a sketch made of a of a potential suspect a person of interest if you want to call it that the strange part is is you know is that you know we're talking Kirtland Hills this is a small department um, they don't have homicides on Kirtland Hills it's like a, it's a one or two or three man police force certainly not equipped to take on a homicide case of this magnitude. Um, and to show the inexperience, they immediately thought it was a suicide. Regardless of the fact that they didn't have a gun. But because murders weren't... Murders weren't, I guess because murders don't happen there and you know there was no sign of robbery or anything else. They thought it was a suicide, but I mean, who commits suicide? Yeah, he's got his watch, he's yeah. got his wallet, and there's no gun. But there's no gun, so how could you even suspect that there was a suicide? But well, that's what we're dealing with here. So A little bit more about this scene. Now, this is an allotment. Now, are these new houses, or are we just looking at, you know, ground plumbing that's being yeah, set for? They're, they're right, there is no housing. There's wow. no houses. Okay, so there, it's, it's, empty. it's a clear site. You it's can, a clear site. Okay. Houses are going to be built there at some point. They are. All you had there... Were roads. Um, That's a scene I had in my head because I was thinking a gunshot you know, would absolutely draw attention if there were houses. Oh no, this was this was this was vacant. There okay. was nothing that not there was not even one house even built. Um, I actually drove there. It was odd. I remember you know driving there a couple of days or so after the homicide and parking my car there and just I don't know trying to put myself into you know thinking mode and you know. What was going possibly going through Tim Brooks' mind? There. You do that a lot. With your said, yeah, go. Yeah, go to the scene there. And it was weird. And the cop pulled up and asked me, of course, what I was doing there. And but it just struck me because it was just vacant. It's just empty. And it's just you know. And around this time too, that's when we started hearing about well, this murder. This is a love triangle. That's that. That was that was what the police were focusing on. Was Ray Timbrook was having a he was divorced, but he was dating a woman who he worked with. Named Lynn, 
and she was involved in some relation with George. So, you know, George, the guy that was supposed to meet with Tim Brooke at the scene here. So that was what the, the focus was on, Lynn and George and Tim Brooke. Tim, the theory was is that George somehow, some way, or another, Tim Brooke was killed because of this love triangle and jealousy. Now, you did mention there was something about, you know, the uh, police not wanting to solve this. Just out of curiosity, real quick, when the police officer approached you, did he seem kind of nervous, like, uh-oh? No, I, I, okay. when I say when I say that is something that police don't want to solve, I mean like, I mean like now. Back okay, then, I see. Back then, I think there were there was I think that they thought that it was going to be a solvable case. I think they believed it, it was a, you know this love triangle thing would be easy to prove, and I, but I think as time went on, they realized that this was not a love triangle situation. I think they believe that it uh, has more to do with something Timbrook knew. It was business-related. Um, and I think, it was, again, it was Timbrook was somebody who knew too much and may have uh, been contemplating talking about what he knew. And what he knew may have uh, had some potential um, implications for you know criminal activity of some sort that's what I'm. That's that's what the, that's what some in law enforcement want want to pursue, but have been told to let it go. Now I, there were two grand juries mm-hmm. that reviewed evidence in this case, so mm-hmm. I assume that means that they had suspects. Do you know whether they the, were those? Those grand jury sessions were a front. They were uh, a show. They were a show. What those grand jury sessions were all about was. Uh, a way to drag Lynn and George into court and to try to squeeze them, to scare them. Um, Is that a tactic that's normally used? Yeah, they, they try. They, they, they want to interview them. And they believe that by calling them into the grand jury that they can get them on the witness stand and force them or compel them in some fashion to cooperate naturally. As, as we have a right to do, you can take the fifth and... That's, that's what happened in this case. Again, they failed to, uh, to, to communicate. And there were all sorts of tactics that early on in the first couple of years that law enforcement tried, some very unique tactics. I attended, I attended Tim Brooks' calling hours. It was very crowded. And not everybody there were friends. Not everybody there were family. Uh, there was a lot of law enforcement at this funeral. They were looking for things. And one of the things that was eventually spotted, either by family or law enforcement, was the fact that Lynn placed a letter into the casket of Mr. Timbrook. Unfortunately, it was only discovered after his burial that she had placed a letter in his casket. So it was years later that the uh, body of Timbrook was exhumed and the letter was removed by law enforcement and, and read turns out the letter was of no value, but that just goes to show you the length that they went to to, to try to solve it. Another thing that they did was interesting was uh, Ray Tembrick was a fisherman. Uh, he would make trips to Canada uh, to go fishing. It was, a, it, was, it was his primary hobby, the love of his life was, was fishing. So they placed a tackle box, fishing tackle box on his uh, tombstone. 
inside the inside the tackle box was a microphone. Oh, really? So the with the idea was is that somebody feeling guilt or remorse would come to his grave and and talk to Ray and say, Ray, I'm sorry this happened, blah, 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 blah. But that's the extreme that they went to. Wow. Um, you think you would see that in some TV, crime TV shows or something. I don't think I've seen that yet. You know what? That's funny because that's what me and my buddy were just talking to an hour ago. Is <laughs> that, you know, law enforcement, they would, like an old Columbo episode. Right. You know, you know I mean, who's going to go to a grave and, and cry out, I did it, I'm sorry, you know, and it's going to be recorded and right. with, the, with the microphone inside this tackle box. But another thing they tried to do was put up a, a billboard. And they placed the billboard on the route that one of the suspects took to work every day. So the suspect would, uh, I don't know if it was Lynn or whoever it was, but she would be driving, every day she would drive to work, she'd have to pass the sign of, you know, help solve Ray Timbrook's murder, $25,000 reward or something like that. Oh, definitely some psychology. And they placed it there specifically. Specifically on the route to mess with her so that she would see it every day. Uh, the other thing is that they hired a uh, an agency, a private investigation agency out of Florida. They brought in a woman whose job was to uh, endear herself to George and to um, have him like her and have some pillow talk at some point. So, I, uh, <laughs> wow. and somehow the some I I haven't ever gotten the details of it, but the. But um, in some fashion, this uh, private investigator may have crossed the line and compromised herself and uh, became uh, un- uh, unusable at some oh. point. So wow. I don't know if she fell for him or whatever, but uh, that also didn't work. There was a lot of effort made early on focusing on those two. And frankly, those two probably, you know, I don't think the, the homicide happened because of the love triangle involved here, but clearly Ray Timbrook knew something and threatened perhaps to talk and needed to be silenced. And Did I... Did I miss this? What was the description of George? Was he a big burly? No, George didn't. No, George didn't ma- ma- match. Okay. The, uh, I think with the theory, if you look at it, is is that you know it may have been a white collar crime, but white collar people usually don't get their hands dirty, so it may have been somebody who was retained for the purposes because there was indication that you know George, in proof that George never made that meeting. Um, with Timbrook. Uh, he had an alibi, so he clearly would, did not meet uh, Timbrook at that uh, location. Uh, so at some point, did law enforcement drop the love triangle and start thinking their top theory was a work-related one, or did they never get there and that I, was just something you got to because you were covering the case? You know, I, as time went on, the, you know, the, the, the case just fizzled. They were getting nowhere. The love triangle thing was not moving. Nobody was talking. Um, <clears throat> you know, they look. You know, they, they did the usual. You know, you look at bank records. You look at phone records. You see who's talking to who. And, and, and the whole love triangle thing was just not going anywhere. Um, I think at some point there was some effort to to take a look at Tim Brooks' work to see is there a possible connection here possibly to his work and perhaps 
you know, again, he knew too much. And, uh, you know, sources that I've talked to said, that yes, that there were some efforts made and there may have been some validity that Tim Brooke knew some things about some things, but it was, you know, it was just told just to, you know, let it go. And, and I think it's unfortunate. And, you know, and again, this is not confirmed. This is, you know, I have this from, you know, a couple of sources who are saying this. And, and it's just, it's unfortunate that I feel for the family. But um, I don't know. I, I think short of a confession from someone, I don't ever see this case being solved. Now, it doesn't seem like the family's given up by any means. I've read a couple anniversary pieces, and it sounded like that they also really believed it was work-related. And I found a, a story very early on where they, the, the boys actually sued for workers' compensation mm-hmm. death benefits, saying their death was related to their father's job. So I have no idea whether they won that case, but... You know, clearly from the beginning, I think they were sensing some work relation. Maybe they knew something. Well, yeah, and even that's not really been fully vetted. Um, I mean, there's just been so little action taken in this case. Um, You know, the the Lake County Sheriff's Department was called in early on in this case because Kirtland Hills obviously couldn't do this by themselves. They didn't have the resources to do a a homicide investigation. Um, They had a police chief who was heading the investigation himself. So they brought in the Lake County Sheriff's Department to assist. Uh, They assigned some detectives. They were working very closely then with uh, the prosecutor at the time, Steve LaTourette, who became famous for his work in the the Jeff Lundgren, the the Kirtland cult murder case. Steve was a a very bright prosecutor and very hard-nosed and wanted this case solved. And there was efforts early on, and as you guys know, if if these murder cases aren't solved quickly, they rarely ever get solved. And the any potential champions of this case in law enforcement are gone. The you know Steve Lachret, he passed away a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Yeah. Um, the police chief isn't there anymore. No, um, that's not, and that's another story too. You know Gerald Smith is, was the police chief of Kirtland Hills and. Lo and behold, turns out that uh, he was, you know, had some criminal issues himself. He was indicted in, you know, federal court for, uh, you know, stealing uh, eighty thousand uh, dollars in personal purchases from the village, and yeah. ended up being sentenced to a couple years in prison yeah. for that. Yeah, and it was bizarre. I mean, Jerry, Jerry Smith was—he was just. I mean, he was like, he reminded me of Opie Taylor, grown up. I mean, he was just this, you know, round face and red hair and just, you know, just really a genuinely nice guy. And when he was indicted and charged with it, I was, like, really shocked because it just, he was just, he seemed as honest as the day goes on. And yeah. just Was the FBI ever brought in? Um, to my knowledge, I, I, I don't know. I think there were, at one point, yes, they, you know, they did a profile as, you know, that's one of the things law enforcement does is they, they contact the FBI to do some sort of profile on, uh, on, on a possible suspect, you know, based on the circumstances of the homicide, give me some sort of criminal profile on, on what kind of a person would do this. And 
So there was a little bit of an effort there, you know, through the FBI. And, again, they did some rewards here and there. But, I mean, and that's why you guys have never heard of the case. There's just there's just not a lot that, that, that's happening. It's, uh, you know, it's. It, but I think in the end, I think if, if the story, if the true story ever came out, about why he was killed, I think it. I think it would be a, a fascinating tale, and I, I think um, it probably hurt a lot of the people who were making sure it doesn't come to light. I think there would be a lot of people who would be uh, professionally uh, embarrassed if, if a lot of the things that you know, that I've been told off the record and privately ever came to light would be, you know, would be embarrassed and harmed and uh, ashamed and, um, you know, their whole public persona would be changed. Um, so these go pretty high, huh? This is high-level stuff, is it? I, yeah, I think so. I, from, I mean, from what I'm told, yeah, that, that there, there are people out there who are, you know, making pledges that, you know, this case will be solved. We work, we will work hard to get this case solved. And this might be some of the same people who are holding it back? And these are some people who are holding it back. Well, I th if I you don't get the confession from the actual people responsible for his murder, maybe when those people die, maybe somebody will be willing to come out. Yeah. I, I, so maybe I, in our lifetime. <laughs> I mean, this, you yeah. did this as a, a cub reporter. I mean, you've got to want to see some closure to this. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by it because it, it always struck me. And it was just he, Steve... I remember always talking to La Tourette. I'm mean, like, all right, who killed Timber? Who, you know, who, you know, you just as the years go by, you always remind the the, the, the cops about, okay, who did it? How's it going? You know, and you know, okay. we as reporters, we move on to other stories because there's no just no new developments. There's nothing new to report, um, and that's why I think this case is kind of like went off into obscurity. Is is you know, here he is, a 44 year old engineer mysteriously killed, executed. Why? Well, Phil, thank you for not letting this one to go off into obscurity. I, I'm glad that we have been able to share this with our listeners. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know that there's anything that can be um, done at this point. Like you said, it's either going to be a confession or somebody's yeah. going to have to die yeah. somewhere yeah. To, to free up some, loosen some lips. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I've heard I've heard that there are people who have come forward and said, you know, I know some stuff, I know some stuff, and, and they've told that to higher-ups, and, and then they've changed their mind. They get chicken, and they backed away. There are people, there's more than two people who know what happened. There are multiple people who know what happened or suspect what happened. Um, so even today, that threat that they're feeling about coming forward, that's still very real, even yeah, after all these years. I think absolutely. That, you know, the, you, know, you you see what happened at Timbrook. Yeah. You know, and you know he he was executed, right. and, and you know over what I don't know, but certainly I think money has a lot to do with it, and and. And the money is all you know. The, money and love. Those money and love is the root of all evil. Money, you know, and I think Jesse Jackson said it. You know, uh, money is not the root of all evil. No money is the root of all evil. No, you know? yeah. And and, it, and it's true. So, yeah. Uh, but it's a fascinating case. And, and the same hope, with love. Love is not the root of <laughs> this lack of love. Yeah. But I hope you know, maybe somebody hear this and maybe somebody you know have a, have a heart and. That's yeah. one of the reasons why we do the podcast, you know. Maybe we can reach somebody out there. 
And sometimes, you know, people might not think some information is important. Right. But it really is. Yeah. Even the littlest detail. Right. And uh, or maybe someone just has to have a change of heart and you know, just you know, give give the family some closure. Let that let you know, give their dad some justice, or just you know, why why let somebody who did this live their life so freely? Why, right. Why do why do they deserve to live on while Timbrook took two bullets to the head? You know, why should they get away with it? That's got to be frustrating for the family. Oh yeah, of course. Right. I feel, I feel for them. Yeah, you know, piss you off. Yeah. You know, that my dad's dead and. The guy who, or woman, or whoever did it is living their life like nothing happened. So right. It's, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but it happens too often. Well, I truly hope that somebody out there listening has, you know, has a change of heart and comes forward. Yeah. That'd it, be great. That would be cool. That would be cool. It would be one to put away. It would be one nice one to solve. Well, thank you, Phil. It has been a great pleasure doing this, and I hope you'll come back and let us do another podcast with you. So I know you've got a ton of mysteries in your resume, and Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we'll make you pull one out again. Absolutely, anytime. That's it for tonight, campers. Check out our website at ohiomysteries.com for photos, news clippings, and more on the story of Ray Timbrook. If you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are on Facebook and Twitter and would be so grateful if you would like, follow, share, or retweet us to your friends and family. We'd love to have them join us. And if you really, really like our podcast, our website has a link to our Patreon page where you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And we'll give you a shout out right here. And what the heck, I'm giving a second shout-out to our first three Patreon supporters from last week. Thanks again, BJ, Tootie, and Kim. Any money we get goes towards equipment, server fees, research costs. So thanks for helping us keep doing what we're doing. That brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Steve and I are so excited to be able to share some of the amazing talent in Ohio. Our singer-songwriter, Zach... That's spelled Z-A-C-H, by the way, and you're going to need to know that so you can find him on Zach Music on Facebook and Twitter and as Zach Brightlights on Instagram. You can also check out his website, ZachMusic.net, and his YouTube channel, Zach Music. You can also see Zach live. He'll be playing on October 27 with his band Brightlights at the Enchanted Forest at Beach Creek Gardens in Alliance. And if you're in Canada, okay, Canada's a big country, but if you are lucky enough to be in the Toronto area of that big country, you're going to find him playing at the Parliament of World Religions from November 1 through 7. Since we don't expect you to remember all of that, we're going to help you out by putting this info on our website. Just look for it under Featured Music at ohiomysteries.com. For now, we'll leave you with the full version of the song, I Want a Future Too. And we'll see you back here next week. Well, this year it's a beautiful place.
greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.